Well, you might consider the Apostle Peter's sort of taken to meddling as you get to chapter 3 in this first letter. He covers ground all the way from the gospel, pagan husbands, the braiding of hair, a quiet and gentle spirit, and the potential of having your prayers hindered as husbands. And so in seven relatively short verses, the Apostle Peter hits a number of things, and so... uh, Obviously, there's great potential here for us to be uh, brought to conviction, I hope, uh, a measure of joyfulness, appreciation for the Word of God and His direction today. So I encourage you, as we look here in 1 Peter chapter 3. And so right out the gate here, we see in verse 1 that uh, there is a a purpose here in this, uh, the the respectfulness of wives and subjection to their husbands, and what would that be, do you think? Seems to be addressed to their souls. And so the context here historically is simply the idea that there were a number of women that were coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, These are Gentile women, uh, more than likely, and their husbands uh, were yet remained pagan. They weren't they weren't believers, and, and so this was the situation uh, that they were in. So we have, of course, a lot of applications to that in our own world as we recognize we have relationships, thankfully uh, not among us with husbands and wives, but nonetheless uh, we have relationships with others that are, that are not believers. And it would be important for us to recognize uh, that Peter here is addressing uh, not adorning the gospel, but adorning ourselves with the gospel. Uh, this idea, we're, we're, this isn't uh, a proclamation that uh, the church or the gospel is to now uh, be market-driven, but that we want for the gospel to be in us and to enhance, obviously, as we focus on holiness. And so that's what the Apostle Peter is talking about here. We see here, regarding, regarding wives here, that there's a focus on conduct. A focus on conduct and a reminder that pagans aren't Christians. They're unconverted. They're not going to act like Christians. And so we shouldn't expect people who are unbelievers, people who uh, are yet unredeemed, we should not expect them to act Christianly. We shouldn't expect for them uh, perhaps even to be very respectful in a number of ways because they've not yet enjoyed the redemption of Christ. And one of the things that really is implied as Peter highlights this is the simple idea of what, what does redemption bring? What is conversion? This is, this is not a new idea. As Peter addresses ideas that are not new, as a matter of fact, he looks all the way back to Sarah regarding a gentle and quiet spirit. The advent of the Lord Jesus Christ didn't create the gentle and quiet spirit nor did it create conversion, nor did it create redemption. And so Peter looks all the way back as we should revere those people of old as well as their ways of old, and he looks back to those days as well. But a reminder here about what is conversion. Does it change an individual? You know, the great battle for the gospel and evangelicalism in England was on this very point. J.C. Ryle. C.H. Spurgeon, all the battles of their day spiritually were over this simple idea of conversion. 
Does Christ change a life? Is it something? And one of the things that David Wells brings up in his writings that we'll address later on in this passage uh, is this idea of the weightlessness of God in our culture. And he brings up the concept of value here as well that we'll see. Things that we value. So we should think about our own redemption here. As the Apostle Peter uh, addresses wives, he says here, Be subject to your own husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, Peter isn't... He, he's not... Uh, He's not uh, saying that uh, the wives shouldn't speak the gospel. But there is, there is a doubtless focus on their conduct. How do they act? And oftentimes, isn't that a validation of who we really are? It's not what we say. It's what we do. Right? George Washington's motto Children, it would be good for you to remember this. George Washington's motto was this. Deeds, not words. Deeds, not words. And so, that's one of the things that Peter is saying here. He's, he is persuaded, as we should be persuaded, that these unbelieving husbands... What does verse 2 say? When they see your respectful and pure conduct, they may be one without a word. They may be one without a word. Are there words in the arsenal of the gospel? Absolutely. But Peter is saying, look here. The, 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 the certainty of the glories of conversion are such that the new conduct that will be in the actions of these wives will win these husbands without a word. That's the idea. So we could ask ourselves the question, are we better? Are we different in a better way with our own conversion? Did the resurrection of our souls and the imputed righteousness of Christ make any difference to us? Do you demand more from unbelievers than yourself? Or do you have low expectations of your own conversion and so project those on others? Right? Do you, what do you expect from a changed life? Peter expects much. He expects that the Lord will use a changed life to convert a pagan husband, one that's never heard the gospel, one that's never heard of the Lord Jesus Christ, one that's never considered worshiping God, one that's completely turned away from the ways of God. Peter Peter wholeheartedly embraces this certainty that faithful conduct as a result of conversion to Christ would change the heart, the hardened heart of a husband. Now, he also addresses this idea not only of respectful, but pure. And the idea behind pure here has to do with fearing God. It has to do with fearing God. These believers fear God and thus approach their husbands from a heart that's consistent with the claims of Christ. In other words, there's a great confidence that these ladies can be faithful because they are... They are adorning themselves with the purity of a fear of the Lord. They can confidently go forward. They can confidently act as a believer. They don't have to cover up what it is that God is doing in their lives. There's a fear, this pure conduct 
They can approach their husbands from a heart that's consistent with the claims of Christ. This idea of integrity is brought up here. The idea that what is on the inside will be revealed with what comes out in the outside. There's a fearlessness. There's, there's, a, there's a casting away of these scales, if you will, these things that might prevent others from seeing the gospel. And that's what Peter is talking about here. To live in such a way as to be more concerned with pleasing God than with the negative consequences of doing things that are not ultimately pleasing to Him. If God is weightless, then I don't really care. I'm not bothered about really following Christ. Then I'm not really concerned with the praxis of my faith, with with what it is that I do. If God is weightless, if it doesn't matter, if I'm just going to say, oh well, He'll forgive me. If I don't live faithfully. Well, as one who's redeemed, yes, He will forgive you. He has forgiven you, but nonetheless, that's a rejection of the very idea of a relationship. We're going nowhere with Christ in our relationship if He's weightless. When's the last time you treated a friend as if what they say and do doesn't matter? Or a husband or a wife? When's the last time you treated a husband or a wife as if what they say and do doesn't matter? That's to declare them weightless. It's called invalidation in today's communication terms. This idea that what you say and do doesn't matter. It's not the way to build relationships. And we know that our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is termed a personal relationship. The Lord Jesus is a person. And the reason that we describe Him as a person, of course, is because He is a person, but also because we relate to Him as one person does to another. There's an expression of valuing what they say and do. And that's the idea that's coming across here with this purity, with this living in fear. That's the idea. And did the Lord Jesus Christ not say Himself in John chapter 14, verse 15, did He not say this, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. That wasn't a threat. It was a statement of fact. The Lord Jesus Christ is simply saying this, The fact of the matter is, if through redemption, through regeneration, through Me giving life to you, If you love me, then what follows is an absolute certainty that you will obey my commands. But we also understand as God's God's people, we're redeemed, yes, but we also have unredeemed flesh that's being drug along with our redeemed souls. And so he would have for us to recognize there's a certain challenge in following Christ, in obeying what he says. But this is a matter of our love to Him. And Peter is drawing out this idea that with this expression of love to Christ, others will be redeemed. That's the idea. And now he addresses something that may appear to be very different. Something that may not appear to have anything to do with the gospel or the relationship, but it most certainly does. As you'll see in verse 3, he says, Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, 
which in God's sight is very precious. It isn't a sinful thing to be inclined to desire to be attractive. It seems to be in the nature of a lady to desire to be attractive. The Apostle Peter isn't saying that that is inappropriate. But we also recognize that there are ways to be inappropriate in drawing attention to oneself. And what he's talking about here is this pagan lifestyle. This idea that one would attract others through things that are not very savory regarding the holiness of Christ. Again, woman may naturally focus attractiveness only on externals. Only on externals. Now, there's a lot in the things that Peter draws our attention to here. A focus on externals is the trap of our culture. It's perceived by the unredeemed that there's only the external, only the physical. What does this supposed science tell us today? The supposed science tells us today about the human body that we're made up only of molecules, only of atoms. There's only, there's a, we're only made up of one part. That part is physical. All we are is what you can see. That's the declaration. And you see that that falls into the trap that Peter is addressing here. This, the, the, the rage of our culture is this idea that there's only the physical. And even well-meaning believers are drawn into that idea. Even well-meaning believers. Physical beauty is not unimportant. Is it important that uh, husbands and wives-to-be are physically attracted to one another? Yes, that's important. That's an important idea. But it isn't the only thing. And it isn't the main thing. It isn't the primary thing. But the two are connected. And Peter draws our attention to that as well. We've all experienced people who are outwardly unattractive because of their poor character qualities, because of their bad attitudes or arrogance. How many people that would otherwise be physically attractive, we are not attracted to because of the way they speak or the way they act. They become ugly to us physically. You see, the two are attached. That's our human experience. That's that's how we experience individuals, right? And so, the Apostle Peter is drawing our attention to this idea. But we also understand that as God's people, we may be drawn more into this idea of only the physical ourselves. Here's some hard questions for you. Let's think about your physical workout. Is your quiet time as long as your workout at the gym is? Is your inner person flabby? This is the day of cooking shows, right? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think about spiritual food as much as you think about physical food. Because the Lord Jesus Christ introduced this concept of spiritual food to the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4, right? The Lord Jesus Christ was persuaded that there is a thing of spiritual food, of spiritual nourishment. So the question for us is, what do we think of spiritual food? What do we think of the preparation of spiritual food? What do we think about about physical fitness 
as regarding spiritual fitness. When the Apostle Paul used gymnasiums as an example, how did he describe it? He said, yes, physical exercise is of some value, right? But there is something that is more valuable than that. Not that you shouldn't exercise your bodies physically, but that you should also think about the spiritual. Again, we're not selling a product or trying to make the gospel attractive. We're trying to accentuate the gospel in ourselves. How much value do you place on this activity? And this really isn't unlike what, um, what we would address as we talk about uh, determining what is good and evil in the garden with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? The, the determination there of Adam and Eve was that they would then declare what is good and what is evil. And so the question that Peter brings up here regarding value, regarding that which is spiritual over that which is physical, is this question here. What do you value? Do you place value on the spiritual? Do you place value on the internal adorning of the heart? And that's the idea that he's addressing to these ladies, that the context of their lives is is not a simple one. It's no easy matter for a wife to live with an unbelieving husband. It's no easy matter for her to subject herself to him. It's no easy matter for her to follow him. It's no easy matter to watch him turn away from the things of God day after day after day. It's no easy matter for her to see that this most precious aspect of her life, the very center of her life, her husband, that one whom she is closest to physically, has no understanding of that at all. It's not an easy matter for an unbelieving wife to live with a husband. And Peter is tenderly addressing this issue. So again, we should ask ourselves, what value do we place on internal adornment? What value do we place on internal adornment? And again, men, I would draw your attention to this idea that Have you considered that your wife's outward beauty has something to do with the way that you treat her? Have you considered that? Have you you considered that the way that you treat your wife, the way that you approach her, the way that you treat her, as Peter says, as the weaker vessel, not flawed, but the weaker vessel. Have you, have you understood, as Peter is drawing our attention here as husbands, have you understood that you have much to do with your wife's external beauty? But more importantly, you have much to do with your wife's internal beauty. The Apostle Paul addresses this idea in his letter to the Ephesians as he talks about the washing of our wives with the water of the Word. The point here isn't that that husbands are somehow in some some odd supremacy uh, over their wives, that they they know more of this holiness than their wives do. It's just that God has given to them the responsibility in this matter. And it ends up being a blessing to them. So are we as husbands investing spiritually in our wives? So Peter is addressing this idea as well. And he brings up this gentle and quiet spirit 
The inclination to adorn, again, is applied to things beyond hair and jewelry and clothing. This is precious in God's sight of higher value. The heart, the inner, as opposed to the outer. A gentle and quiet spirit. The idea here is humility, is mildness. And again, precious to God. There is, there is something being made here of costliness. The Lord, the Lord is making here a statement about what is of higher value than something else. We were exhorted here to understand a new system, a new treasure. Not necessarily new, but it's as if the stock market was flipped on its head, right? The externals no longer enjoy the primacy. The internals do. Of course, not to the exclusion to the externals. Nonetheless, they work together as we see. Verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, I'm not persuaded that Peter here is, uh, is, is requiring women to walk several steps behind their husbands and call them, uh, uh, verbalize the words Lord and Master to them. But the idea here is certainly one of respect. The idea here is one of a recognition of place, a place that, that our Lord Jesus Christ knows full well and has fully entered into the difficulties and challenges of being a wife in this situation. But it's appropriate that we revere the past and look to the past as instructive. In this case, the holy women who hoped in God. Now, ladies, uh, you might rather focus on another attribute, but the Apostle Peter does focus on the attribute of submission to husbands. And it should be desirous that ladies follow in the footsteps of other faithful women, in this case Sarah, as she submitted to her husband. As the faithful men and women are spoken of as children of Abraham, that is, those who are redeemed by faith are the true children of Abraham. I'd like to draw your attention to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Let's talk a little bit about heritage here. Let's talk a little bit about our ancestors, why don't we? Now let's look at Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul uh, says some very, very interesting things here. Beginning in verse 6 of Romans 9, he says, But it is not enough as though the word excuse me, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but though Isaac through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now what Paul is saying is this. He says all of Israel is in Israel. Now that sounds kind of confusing, right? But what he's saying is this. The true children of Abraham are children of faith. They are his offspring. The redeemed are the true children of Abraham. You want to talk about heritage? 
You want to talk about those Jewish roots? Well, let me encourage you to go right ahead and talk about your Jewish roots. Because the Bible indicates that we are the true children of Abraham. We are his descendants. We are his offspring. And, and so as the men would look to be sons of Abraham, and so the Apostle Peter is drawing our attention here, that the daughters are the daughters of Sarah as one who is faithful. And so that's the idea that Peter is getting at right here. Now, Peter says something else that's interesting. He says in verse 6, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, you might have expected Peter to say, don't fear anything that isn't frightening, right? Because why should you fear things that aren't frightening, right? I mean, how many times, ladies, maybe you've heard your husband say this, uh, honey, don't worry about that, that's, that's really not a big deal. Don't, don't fear that. But Peter doesn't say that. <laughs> Peter says, no, 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 there's lots of frightening things out there. Hopefully it isn't your husband, ladies. There's a lot of frightening things out there. Don't fear those things. That's what Peter's saying. Don't fear those things. Here's an acknowledgement that their lives will include perhaps much that's frightening. And they have no reason to fear even the frightening things. Why? Well, what sort of things do you fear? Do you fear what other people think of you? That's often a fear, right? We, we may be bound up in wondering what people think of us, but you see, the Apostle Peter has already addressed this at the end of chapter 2. Verse 23, the Bible says, When he was reviled, that is the Lord Jesus, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, this is an important matter. Why, why was it that Jesus responded this way? Is it because it didn't matter what other people did? Was it because holiness didn't matter? Was it because that it's appropriate for the, the commander of the universe, the one that holds all things together, the agent of the creation? Is it, is it because he doesn't care what people say and do? Oh, no. No, that's not it at all. What the Lord Jesus is saying here, what Peter is saying of him is this is that there will, and there is coming a time when all the wrongs will be set right. Today isn't that day, and the Lord Jesus Christ entrusts Himself to a Father who knows exactly what's going on. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what, what, who you are. He knows what is right and what is wrong. He knows that Miss So-and-so doesn't know anything about you although she may be telling all kinds of people what she thinks she knows, right? So that's one of the reasons that we are not to fear. God sees all. He judges rightly. It's also important that we recognize, particularly these faithful ladies in this uh, immediate context of this idea here that Peter's talking about, is that others' sinful faithlessness can inhibit our faithfulness. 
Have you ever thought that you would be faithful if only something else would happen? I could be faithful if only He would do this. Or I could, I, could be, I could be holy if only this person would do this. Well, I've got great news for you that Peter's addressing here. Is Peter authorized by his master, the Lord Jesus Christ, is saying, you're released from all of that now. No longer... Do you need to think that others are holding you back from entering into faithful holiness? Because we have a righteous judge in the Lord Jesus Christ who empowers us to faithful living. It's irrelevant what other people do. Can they make your life difficult? Sure. But they can't make you unholy. God has gone before us in all things. Another reason not to fear. The life He has for us to live, if live faithfully following Him, requires courage. Remember what He said to Joshua in chapter 1 of Joshua. Nobody had clearer information on what they were to do or the situation they were about to encounter than Joshua did. And yet in the short span of nine verses... Joshua is exhorted to be strong and courageous. Only be strong and very courageous. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. It's as if Peter had Joshua chapter 1 in his mind as he wrote this to these faithful ladies. Don't be frightened about anything. Even those things that are frightening. Like really frightening. I got this. That's what he's saying. That's the idea. God has gone before us in all things. It requires courage because it strikes paralyzing fear in many. Strikes paralyzing fear to follow God in this generation. It's no easy matter. Peter is addressing that here. Lastly, why the courage not to, not to be fearful? Because the expectation of suffering strikes fear. Let's not forget the overall focus of the book of the letter here of 1 Peter isn't actually on submission, it's on suffering. It's on suffering. The normal Christian life is a life of suffering. This suffering results in greater communion with our suffering Savior. There's no substitute in this. There, you know, we live in a world of substitutes. What If I can't do this, and I can do that. There is no substitute for suffering regarding communion with Christ. He's designed it that way. We, we might have selected another way, perhaps. We might have, we might have decided, uh, were we deciding these matters, that, that a weekend at the beach would actually be drawing us into holiness. But he decided it wouldn't be that way. That it would actually be suffering. Now, I recognize that a weekend at the beach could be suffering. okay? But nonetheless, you understand that the difficulties of our lives are those things that draw us into suffering. The faithfulness, the, the making those hard decisions, counting the cost and doing it anyway. It brings us not only into suffering, but more importantly, into deeper communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in verse 7, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, 
since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We enjoy the movie at our house uh, occasionally, My Fair Lady with Rex Harrison. And one of the funny things that Rex Harrison does in that movie is he has this sort of routine where he talks about why can't a woman be more like a man? Why can't a woman be more like a man? It's important for us to understand as Peter is looking at this, when, particularly with this word weaker. What do you think of this word? What is Peter getting at here? Because you see, in the culture that we live in, we are inclined to look at this word weaker and think about what? Defect. Defect. Right? This is, this is defective. Now, men, if you've ever seen your wife give birth, you recognize that your wife is not weak. Or if you've ever seen her do other things, we understand that, that, uh, that women have tremendous stamina. They have tremendous strength and courage. There's, there's, it, it, it seems that there's tremendous uh, uh, equity, if you will, similarities between the strength oftentimes and the courage and the stamina that women have regarding uh, men. But we need to understand this not as a comparison but as a by way of design. She is the weaker vessel. Women are not weak versions of men. Women aren't a version of men. <laughs> women are women. And men are men. Men are not versions of women. Men are not defective women. Now, our culture would think otherwise. Our culture is persuaded that men are actually defective women. But that isn't true either. Because the Bible, uh, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 27, So God created man in His own image. Do you have a picture in your head? So, man, so God created man in his own image? Do you have a picture in your head? I hope the picture in your head has two people in it. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created man. Now, I recognize there's more than one way to understand this, but it's important that we see that this is male and female. Right? Yes, there's tremendous similarity between the one and the other. But every husband and brother in this room will also acknowledge that woman is wholly other. She is a different thing than me. Peter understands that. And he's drawing our attention to it here. Now again, this concept of weakness... I'd like to draw your attention to some weak women here. Let's look at 1 Samuel 25.
Beginning in verse 23 here, let me set the scene up for you here. Here's Nabal. Nabal is married to Abigail. Nabal's name means, does anybody know? It means foolish. And as his name is, so he goes. It's almost as if John Bunyan wrote 1 Samuel chapter 25 here. But nonetheless, we see when Abigail saw David in verse 23, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. What did David want to do with Nabal? Lop his head off. No problem. But you see, Abigail, Abigail, I'm persuaded in her weakness, understood what was better for David. And David followed her encouragement. I might draw your attention also to Deborah and Barak in Judges chapter 4, but that will wait for another day. Weakness also draws respect, tenderness, and honor. Man, let me ask you a question. If your wife... was the same physical structure as you are. Would you be inclined to treat her with honor and respect? Would you be inclined to be tender to her? Would you be inclined to love her well? Would you be inclined to open the door for her? Would you be inclined to show her the kind of tenderness that God intends for men to show their husband, their wives? Another purpose here. Weakness draws respect, tenderness, and honor. We may have a tendency to treat rough or sturdy things with less care than things that are delicate. And their weakness draws the correct posture in defending our wives as well. We don't disdain fine china because it isn't stainless steel. You ever eat on stainless steel? Pick the china. Again, the weakness is by design. It's not a flaw. It's not a result of the fall. Now, the showing honor. Husband, how do you do this? How do you show honor to your wife? Men, how do you show honor to ladies? That's an applicable use of this passage. It's not merely for husbands and wives. But it's, it's to draw us into treating each other as we should for the sake of the gospel and the glory of Christ. How do you do this? There's also a certain equity here when we see that they're heirs of the grace of God together. Someone has said the ground is level at the cross. What they meant when they said that was that there's none who uh, 
are above another at the foot of the cross. And that's what Peter is drawing our attention to here. Regarding this idea of honor, I'd like to bring up a cultural issue, and that is this issue of atomization. Atomization. This is a big word. Atomization. Think about atoms, children. Little bitty particles, right, that float around. They make up molecules. You know, our physical structure is made up of these things, right? But what we also understand in our culture is this idea of individuality. Individuality. And one of the things that is unfortunately true in our families today is this idea that the wife does her thing and the husband does his thing. The atomization of our culture is this idea that there's an individual mission for each individual. That is true. But it's, it's become such that there no longer is this, is this task, this unified task that husband and wife do. Whose responsibility is it in a family to do the things that God has called families to do? It's the husband's responsibility. Every bit of it is. Every bit of it. That's why the wife is the help meet. There's a singular task. It's not the only task, but much of it is much of it is, is falling in line with this idea of gospel faithfulness, of raising up God followers, of being faithful in this world, drawing the vocations that we have, whether that's husband, husband or wife, mother, father, brother, sister, bricklayer engineer, whatever the case may be, all together for this unified goal. Wives, how involved are you in the success of your husband? How do you encourage him in the tasks God has given to him, in which you're his helpmeet? Again, your husband is a responsible party in every task that God has given to the family. Are there things you can do to assist him in this? Or are you so entangled with other things that he's just on his own? You want to talk about honor? What do you do together? (laughs) I'm not talking about going out on a date here. I'm talking about this singular task that God has given to families. God calls. There's this honorable thing, right? Wives honoring husbands, husbands honoring wives. Men and women also honor those that aren't even married. You see, there are aspects of this singular task that God has given us that are certainly more in line with ladies than men. That's an appropriate application to this text. Peter goes on to say that they're heirs with you of the grace of life. Now he addresses men particularly here. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as weaker vessels, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, the sameness here, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Men, is it news to you that the answer to your prayers is conditioned on how you treat your wife? What do you think of that? Is that what Peter is saying? Peter is saying, based on how you honor your wife, so will your prayers be answered? Is he saying that? Yes. Peter is saying that. You ever wonder why your prayers go unanswered? 
You might have your answer here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Psalm 102, verse 17, he regards the, regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. This idea of destitute, of humility when we come to prayer, of a recognition that what God says is right and good, not what I say is right and good. This humility. Proverbs 28, 9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. We understand that hearing the law, hearing the Word of God is associated with doing the law of God. There's this idea, I only hear biblically if I act on it, if I do it. If I care nothing for the Word of God, then God's not going to hear my prayer. On down in this chapter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, Peter, of course, isn't saying here that perfection is required for prayers. But do you honor God? Do you value the things that God values? Are you a repenter at heart? Yes, we're all sinners, but are we repenters at heart? John Knox wrote a treatise on prayer. He says, when sinners are not heard of God, there are two precedents One is this dejection of ourselves in God's presence. And the other is that we shouldn't think that we should be heard for anything in ourselves. We don't deserve to have our prayers heard. Nothing in us makes us attractive such that God is going to answer our prayer. So we, we, he doesn't owe us anything. That's, that's an important idea. But what we also see is that he values a turning to him in our prayer. Will we be a people who recognize that we're empty without Christ, that he calls us to follow him, that a childlike faith is, in fact, something that he listens to? And so we're called to this idea. Let's pray.